Well, thank you very much. I'd still preach even if you didn't do that, but I guess it helps. How's everybody doing this morning? Isn't it funny when a speaker, a presenter gets up and asks that question? Rock stars do it, you know, stand up on the stage and ask the question and just go, I I can't really respond to you because we can't have a one-on-one conversation. It's just kind of a filler that we do. And so I feel good now. I've got that out of my system. (laughs) Hey, uh, what are we doing right now? Where's our, where, where are we studying? The gospel of Luke, very appropriate right now during this season of Advent. And this is As we talked about last week, we went from Luke chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 20. And uh, today we're going to hit chapter 2, 21 through 338. And this is, again, a letter that Luke is writing to Theophilus, who is a lover of God. And that's what this is about, is this is to the lovers of God. And as we said It's to the skeptics alike. Everybody's welcome in the room. Everybody in between. Challenging all of us to answer this question, who do you say that I am? This question is going to, in a good way, or possibly in a bad way, as we're going to look at this morning, uh, it's going to haunt us. This is the question we can't get away from. This should be filling our minds This should be our takeaway week after week, day after day. This should be getting into our heart, our mind. Who do you say that I am? Like right now, who do you say that I am? Two hours from now, when you're not here listening to this, who do you say that He is? It's very personal, the way that He is approaching us. It's like that question just pops out of this story that's being told. And Jesus gets face to face with us. We have to reckon with that question. This question is not just for those who may, not, who may be far from God at this time. This question is for those who are are close. These are this question is for the the Mother Teresas and you know the people that we would put on a pedestal and say, man, those guys are like super Christians. I can't even imagine attaining to that level of uh, understanding and relationship with God. And we've seen in this very simple young girl Mary, we see this declaration of this messenger of God to her. And speaks to us as well because God's Word is both timeless and timely. It was then, it's now, and it's going to be. And he comes to her and he says, listen, with God, you need to understand something. The things that I've talked to you about, the things that I've told you, I know they seem unbelievable. He, he knew what he was getting into, Gabriel, when he was going to deliver this message. He knew that this was going to be tough for her to digest. This was not going to be easy, but he says, listen, nothing is impossible with God. And we could go home. Nothing is impossible with God. 
I am very familiar in a wrong way with that phrase. Because there's a lot of things that, from my perception, that I've experienced in life that seemed like, nope, this one was impossible because it didn't turn out the way that I thought it should. Nothing is impossible with God according to His will. The way that He wants it done according and for His glory. So, with that as a backdrop, I'd like to announce the court, or excuse me, the engagement of Damian Thompson and Courtney Dugan. Because nothing is impossible with God. It happened. We finally did it. We got there. No, this is a this is a great celebration. Uh, they had a party here uh, this last week, and and Damien, in front of about fifty people, uh, dropped the bomb on her. And uh, what'd you say, Court? Yeah. Yep. So she said, yeah, Mary said, with a yes heart. There was no yeah heart with Mary, but we're getting Courtney, she's going to get there eventually. And so, yeah. But God uses anyone with simple faith. Damien comes to Courtney and says he infuses her with faith because I know, I've met with him, I've talked with him, different ones have been, you know, helping him along in the process and encouraging him, go man, you can do this and God's in this. And you know what? He's been infused with faith. And so when he came to her, he infused her with faith. Faith is communicable. You can give that away. You can impart that to somebody else. Somebody who's totally in the dumps, uh, you know, really struggling. Lisa did this to me this morning. I'm up there. I'm, I'm, you know, we're rehearsing this morning. She comes in and she says a few words to me. And immediately my spirit is totally lifted. Any spouse know what I'm talking about. You're, it's like, it's so uncanny the way that it works, the way God works, where, you know, one spouse will be totally just really struggling with believing anything good could happen and then the other one is able to help encourage them and stir their faith in the Lord and say you know what God can do anything anything's possible with him so Holy Spirit we need faith to believe this you've given us each a measure of faith would you help us to to maximize that to its fullest potential to believe you and even in the difficult times when we're struggling, that's all part of what you're, you're working into our lives. Say, so you know what? Even though I can't feel it, even though I can't see it, the circumstances around me are all contradictory to what I know I should believe intellectually. We just say, we believe you. Nothing is impossible for you. Simple faith. Believing God at His Word and obeying Him. Ah, oh, so good. Well, we're going to pick up the story here. Eight days later, when the, after Jesus was, was uh, born, verse 21, the baby was circumcised. He's, this in the, the, the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture, was a mark. It was a consecration. It was a setting aside. It was saying, you're my chosen one. And certainly this is no different here with Jesus, but 
um, this is something that they brought their son to the temple like any Jewish family would do. And, and to say, you know, for in a sense, they, they look to the priesthood to, to mark and consecrate and set aside. God did special things, you know, through them. And I believe this is a heart for all of us as parents to set our, our kids aside, our, our, our children aside for Jesus, for a special purpose that He would be able to use them. Not one parent said amen. Come on. And He was named Jesus. Kids, I'm sorry. I'm, work, I'm working with your parents, grandparents on this. We want our kids set aside for Jesus, consecrated, marked by Him. Amen. You guys are thinking about the shopping day and the Seahawks. My brother-in-law and sister here up here just flaunting the Seahawks right in front of me. It's difficult to concentrate. She said, I'm trying to keep you on track. His name, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for the purification Offering is required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem. So they're in Nazareth. This is, we, some of these things are lost, you know, in the translation here. But Nazareth to Jerusalem, we're talking about a 140-mile trek. It took them a week to get there. And they made this trek to, to bring their son. I mean, these are committed people. And... It says, uh, and they go through the various things about how they're supposed to, if it's a boy, and to dedicate him to the Lord, and the requirement of the law for their sacrifice. And it says, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And I love this because this was a special clause given for the poor. And really what we're seeing in here, our takeaway from this, is that it's not about what you have. It's about the heart in which you're giving what you're giving. And that's what God looks at. And we're reminded of this again, that even the parents that God had given Jesus, were uh, they were very poor. They didn't have anything. They didn't have the lamb or anything like that that they could bring. And yet God looked at their heart, of course, and saw that they had a complete and total heart committed to Him uh, to honor Him and glorify Him. Now there was a man named Simeon who lived in Jerusalem. He was a righteous man and very devout, filled with the Holy Spirit. Say, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he eagerly expected the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. I want you to notice that connection there. You're going to see, we're going to see over and over again here, the influence, the interaction of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is going to write this gospel, and then what else does he write? Acts. Holy Spirit on the scene, moving in the lives of the people. So he's very, he's very amped up on this. So he's going to really highlight the, the influence and the power, the indwelling of the Spirit. So here he is, filled with the Spirit, and this results in him eagerly expecting. We talked about the pregnant woman. She can't get away from expectation, can we? Can she? We can. She can't. <laughs> okay? So she's expecting constantly, and that expectation is growing. It's a beautiful picture of this birth, of, of what that looks like for us to expect Jesus, making greater room for Him in our hearts, in our lives. 
crowding out the shopping days and all that kind of stuff. And the consumerism and everything and staying focused on who is He? What is His purpose? How do, we, how do our lives glorify Him? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, verse 26, had revealed to Him that He would not die until He had seen the Lord's Messiah. Revelation comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to Him. That day, the Holy Spirit led Him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby, then He was there. This is powerful. Do we see the, the divine interaction? What's things that we would look at and we say, ah, oh, that's just coincidence. It says Holy Spirit led Him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led for divine interactions with other people and God brought Him there right at the right time. There are a 140 mile trek that took a week. He's there at the exact time because Holy Spirit is orchestrating in the lives of people. He's intimately involved. God is not removed somewhere out in outer space, just left things to themselves. We may, we may not be able to recognize the interaction and work of the Lord in our life, but He is working. The question is, are we responding to where He's working? I just love this. Luke is just over and over again, just emphatic about the work of the Holy Spirit. So Simeon's here, and he takes this child in his arms. He knows who he's holding. He's holding the second person of the triune God. I stole that from somebody, by the way. I didn't pick up on that either. He's holding God. And he knows it. It's not like the other people who most of them are oblivious to what's going on. Can you imagine babysitting Jesus? Babysitting God? Mary's like, I need to go to the grocery store and get some stuff. Can you watch God for a little bit? Keep him out of trouble. He took the child in his arms and praised God. I'll say he did. Lord, now I can die in peace. He's an old man. He's been waiting for this. Lord, now I can die in peace. As you promised me, I have seen the Savior. Some translations say salvation, but it's, it's I've seen the Savior. Do you see what I see? That's the big question. Who do you see that I am? I'm not claiming to fully see who He is. I'm just saying, we got to keep looking. Keep looking. Keep responding. I have seen the Savior you have given to all people. This is significant. This is something that Matthew doesn't do. Matthew's writing his Gospel to the Jews. In particular, Luke is making sure that the, the Gentiles, all of them know, hey, Jesus came for everybody. It's been prophesied. The, the Hebrew guys, they're not, they didn't pick up on it all the time uh, along the way because of the, you know, this special privilege thing and favor that they had with God. No question about it. But he wants to make sure, hey, there's room for everybody in the room. Lovers and skeptics alike, bring it on. He is the light. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And He is the glory 
of your people Israel. So Joseph and Mary, they're amazed by this. And then he, then uh, Simeon blessed them. And remember, we always need to be cautious when somebody says, God bless you. Remember when Gabriel said, God bless you to Mary? He said, you're, you're blessed among women, but we all know the end of the story. And we know what happened when she was blessed and to have Jesus, and, but the loss and that would come in that. And so he says here, he blessed them and he said to Mary, this child will be rejected by many in Israel and it will be their undoing. But he will be the greatest joy to many others. Thus the deepest, deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce yours, Mary, your very soul. And she didn't understand what was going to happen. We all know, I mean, anybody who's a parent, you think about the possibility of, of, or have experienced the death of a child. The, the depths of, of the piercing of the soul and the dark nights of the soul that follow from that. This child will be rejected by many. He will be a stumbling block to many. And it will be their undoing. It's interesting as I, as I was studying various uh, early church fathers and writers, Augustine, different ones, and, and the things that they were talking about was that Jesus will either be a stumbling block, which is going to cause one to spiritually fall from grace. Or it will be a step up, in a sense, into salvation. And we keep coming back to this, what do you see? Who do you see Jesus to be? No, no, really. Not the church Sunday school version, but really, who do you see Him to be? I mean, we're going to look ahead here as we get to some parables that Jesus is going to talk about in terms of the kingdom. And I, I believe some lights are really going to go on for us parable of the sower and the seed and you look at the different soil that the seed of the gospel of the kingdom which brings salvation uh, to mankind there's like 25% that's not very good odds in terms of God's sovereign choice and we don't want to fool ourselves into thinking that just because we bought the t-shirt, we attend the meetings, and we do all that, that somehow we've got this golden ticket. Jesus is going to be a warning to some. He's going to be resurrection life to others. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Another woman, an older woman, and I, I love just the, the revealing of the Holy Spirit, how God uses these different elder statesmen and this stateswoman. She's 84 years old. If you look over here in verse 37, 
she never left the temple. This girl was a lifer. And she lost her husband seven years after they were married. Now she's 84 years old, committing herself to prayer and fasting. She stayed there day and night worshiping God. She came along just as, coincidentally speaking, right? Just as Simeon is there talking with Mary and Joseph. And she begins praising God. She talked about Jesus to everyone. You see, based upon what she saw, it affected her actions. It says she talked about Jesus to everyone who had been waiting for the promised Messiah. She couldn't get away from it. When Jesus, verse 39, when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law, they returned back home to Nazareth to Galilee. The child's grown up healthy and strong, and he's filled with wisdom beyond his years, and God placed is giving him special favor. And so they're going back to Nazareth, a population of between 50 and 150, 200 people. They just came into Jerusalem, uh, which is like 100,000. Remember when we were studying, we were looking at Pentecost, and we we're going through that season. And, you know, during that time of Pentecost, where everybody's coming into town, it could, you know, blossom to like 3 million people during that time. But typically it was around 100,000. But, I mean, this is, a, this is a big city. And so they would every year, verse 41 here, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Passover being a foreshadowing, every year they would come to this festival and they would sacrifice lambs. And this would be signifying what happened in Egypt where the angel of death would pass over the people if the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts and the lentils. And we remember as we looked at the uh, on the doorpost, the lentils on the side, and then the bucket at the bottom with the blood, and which would be a foreshadowing if people could see. And most nobody could see, but we can see from our perspective now the hands that were pierced of Jesus, the feet that were pierced, and His head with a, th- with a crown of thorns. And this would be a foreshadowing of Christ being that Passover lamb for us. So every year they would go and celebrate Passover... And uh, it says they went there when Jesus was 12 years old. They attended the festival as usual. And after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So they're all in this huge caravan. Oftentimes they would caravan, you know, back and forth uh, with other family members and friends because there were, you know, robbers and bad people along the way that they needed to protect themselves against. And so, you know, the women typically would be up front. The men would be toward the back and uh, protecting. And, and uh, then they, I think they just probably figured one of them had Jesus. Joseph's thinking Mary's got him. He must, you know, he must be with her. And she's thinking the same thing about him. And they realize they get all the way home. I don't know how you go a week and not realize that you know, you've lost your kid. I think at least you'd be doing roll call maybe every evening or something like that. But it didn't happen. Somehow Jesus slipped through the cracks and they've lost God. <laughs> Completely lost Him. You have been entrusted with the Master of the universe and you couldn't even hold on to Him. 
But you can imagine getting there, arriving, have you seen Jesus? Have you, have you seen Jesus? Nobody knows where He is. Absolute panic. I remember we were in Portland one year. We're down there with the kids and we're running through. I don't think Jaron was born yet even. And uh, we were just having a great time along the waterfront. And we walked all the way down the waterfront. And all of a sudden we realized, how old was Justice? Three? Two and a half, three? All of a sudden we realized there's no justice. And I'm thinking, you know how it is? You know, you know when you, you have that initial just kind of, oh no. And then, and then all of a sudden you see the kid that you're looking for and they pop out from behind, you know, something. This didn't happen. A minute goes by, two minutes, and it just all of a sudden becomes eons. And we're frantically running around looking in the different shops and there, really, there wasn't anybody around. I mean, it was just us. And all of a sudden, justice isn't there. So basically at the start of the waterfront, somehow we walked out of there and he got left behind. And so I, I mean, we're, Lisa's in tears where, I mean, we're scared of that. I can only imagine losing God, what that would be like. But it, it, nevertheless, it was their son that they've raised. And uh, so they have to go all the way back to Jerusalem, 140 miles a week journey. They should have been taking attendance. That's all I can say. It, it would have helped them a lot. But you can imagine. So when they get in there in, you know, the, the temple where the Passover festival is, you have this, this holy of holies. This is the, the greatest, the pinnacle, the highest point of Jewish culture is the holy of holies representing the presence of God. Um, everything here points to Jesus. You have um, what... Um, what Jews and I, I sat down with the, with the gal who's our uh, landlord, not landlord. Here, what is it? Yeah, point of contact. The building administrator here at the Jewish school, and talking with her when Yom Kippur uh, was being celebrated. And this is otherwise known as the Day of Atonement, and this is the most important time of year uh, for 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 Jews. And this is where the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take a goat and he would sacrifice. He would pray over it. There would be a confession of sin for the entire nation. Everybody's focused on this. And they would take the goat and they would sacrifice the goat as uh, the washing of sins for all of us, for everyone. And not us, for them, for Hebrews. And... Uh, but then they would also take another goat that was called the scapegoat. And they would um, release basically just, you know, in faith verbally their sins upon this goat. And then they would chase this goat out of town. The forgetting of the sins, as God says, I've forgotten your sins. Your sins are no more. They're totally washed away. I no longer hold these things against you. And Jesus would become the fulfillment of all of those laws, all of those rituals that they would do all along the way. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, when they finally found him. And this would be a 10-day journey. So it, wasn't, it was three days later after they got back to Jerusalem in a city of 100,000 people that they actually found him. 
son, where have you been? Your father and I have been searching for you everywhere. And he says, but why did you search? You should have known that I would be in my father's house. And you see Jesus, you know, for whatever this process is that I've often wondered about, when did he finally start to become divinely aware of himself? When his, the fully human and the fully divine, and the, as he's growing in stature and, and all these things, as the scriptures say, that you have this, you know, his, his uh, it says, so Jesus grew both in height and in wisdom, and he was loved by God and by all who knew him. And you have this amazing thing where the, um, early church fathers, they, they believe and they talk about how that, that his divine nature instructed his human nature. And that was how there was this growing that was taking place. And it's, it's really a, a beautiful picture to get into the uh, what they call is the, the hypostatic uh, union. The union between the, uh, the divine and the human. It's an amazing thing that God did in us uh, to, to allow Jesus... To be able to relate with us. To go through all the things that we would touch and face as humans. He went through all of those things so that he could relate to us in such a personal and deep way. John the Baptist comes on the scene And he's preaching that people should be baptized to show that how they should turn from their sins and turn to God to be forgiven. And one of the things that's recorded here that John would say, he he quotes the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, which is John himself. Prepare a way for the Lord's coming. Prepare a pathway. Make a straight road for him. John didn't say it. He screamed it. This guy was a voice. It says a voice shouting in the wilderness. And he did it. And he did it well. (laughs) He represented uh, the way that he was. Prepare this pathway for the Lord's coming. Make a straight road for him. Fill in the valleys. Level the mountains and the hills. And of course, we're not talking about real valleys. We're not talking about real hills bringing these things down. We're talking about a pathway into the human heart. We're talking about lowering these mountains of pride so that the humble king can come in because he doesn't come in any other way. Straighten the curves. Smooth out the rough places. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Who is able to see Jesus? The same people that are able to see Him today. The humble, the broken, the desperate, the repentant. 
And he's going to go on here and he's, he's talking about... Here it says, here's a sample, verse 7 in chapter 3. Here's a sample of John's preaching to the crowds that came for baptism. You brood of snakes! Wow, John. Who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? Prove by the way you live that you have really turned from your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way that you live. Put your money where your mouth is. Show me the goods. You guys are really good at talking the talk. But when it comes to walking the walk, different story. Prove by the way that you live. He says, don't just say we're safe, we're the descendants of Abraham. That proves nothing. God can change these stones into the children of Abraham. Don't just say because we, again, we sit and listen to whatever a Bible teaching or I've grown up in a Christian home. Boy, that one was pastor's kid, myself, growing up in a Christian home, Christian school. You can become numb to the things of God, the presence of God. I remember it wasn't until really, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I prayed the prayer and, you know, asked Christ genuinely into my heart with my mom at six years old. But it wasn't really until the end of my freshman year in college where things were no longer just living off of my parents' Christianity which was kind of miserable, actually. You always feel like you're faking the funk because there isn't a real ownership. And for whatever reason, I didn't see Him for who He really was. But He came to me and He revealed Himself to me in a very genuine way. And He basically said to me, Eric, you either choose your way or you choose my way and there was something that was so clear and so firm and yet so loving and drawing at the same time that it produced a new level of surrender in my life that has affected me every day since You know, all of us along the way, and we, we pray this for our own kids, and, you know, we pray this for, for people all the time, you know, just that, it, you know, you can, you can be around all in the environment and everything, but the issue is every person that Jesus is drawing has to have an encounter with Him. And from that point, exactly, an ongoing, continual encounter with Him. so beautiful here that he he says yes every tree does, that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire and the crowd here they respond to this and they say what should we think how should we process this what you've said is that what they say What, what question do they ask? Do they say, what should we think about this? How should we ponder from this point on about the things that you have brought to us? 
What should we do? How should our life change? Listen, who's the crowd? Who are the people that are asking this question? Who is it? Somebody said Jews. They might be Jews. The tax collectors were Jews, and that was one of the groups. Pharisees. It's also soldiers. Those would have been Roman guys. The Gentiles, you see God coming after. And once again, Jesus is reaching. God is reaching to the bottom of the barrel. Culturally, societally, He's reaching to the bottom of the barrel. He's going after the, the ones that are most hated. The ones that you know, society has rejected and says, you, there's no... I mean, the, we're, they were living in a captive, uh, under a captive regime. The Romans, and here He's addressing the soldiers. He's addressing the tax collectors. And they're responding, what must we do? You say, they're seeing something. They're hearing something. Faith is infusing them. What should we do? Wow. God's mercy. What should we do? It's a great opportunity for us to reflect and continue reflecting. Husbands and wives, what what should we do? How should we respond? Forgiving. Tender-hearted mercy. Compassion for one another. Parents and children, what should we do? Can you ask that question to the Lord today? What, what should I do? As a parent, how should I parent? What are, what are areas that I haven't made room for you in my parenting? Where I've been controlling, I've been harsh. I haven't represented Father's heart to my kids. Kids, how about you? What, what are areas where you're not giving your heart? Where is there not a yes heart? In you. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Well, same thing applies. If you love God, that you would obey the heart of your parents, giving your heart on a regular basis, siblings, friends. What should we do? How should we do things differently than we have been? Have we just been going along, whatever. There, there's, there needs to be constant evaluation in these areas, particularly in the area of relationships. Repent and bring forth fruit worthy of of repentance. Scripturally, as we close here, confession is always associated with seeds. Repentance is always associated with fruit. Show me the money. It has to start somewhere where a change of heart begins. But it wasn't as Jesus was coming on the scene and that we understand from Scripture there was no room for Him in the inn. 
It's the same way with the human heart in many ways. Not making room for Him to come in to our heart, to smooth the different areas, to bring down those high hills, to, to allow Jesus to come in and indwell us, to be living within us, to reside in our heart on the throne room, the rulership of our lives. He came as a baby, but He came as a king. That was the greatest threat. Because everyone, the world over, was going to have to answer that question, who do you say that I am? And here we're going to end with this: the generations. I'm not going to go through and read every single one of them. But you'll notice here, as a, in contrast to Matthew, that Luke is going to uh, he's going to start with Jesus, and then he's going to go all the way through. He's going to touch on David. He's going to touch on Abraham, and that's where Matthew ends his genealogy. But he goes all the way back to Noah, and then back to Adam, and then Adam was the son of God. What's the point of these genealogies? You know, why, why in the world do you take the time to go through all this? I don't know anybody that's spending their devotions in these types of things. You know, it's like, oh man, oh, Zerubbabel. Oh, that is so good. No, but the point is, is that God is faithful from generation to generation. God's redemption reaches to even the most dysfunctional individuals and families. And He also comes to us today Right? We're all dysfunctional in some way, shape, or form. But yet Jesus comes to us here. I love this, the timing of all this and the time of Advent and Christmas. Who do you see, how do you see Him to be? Who do you say that He is? Amen. I want you to stand. I just want to bless you as you go today. There's all kinds of nostalgia and everything associated with this time of year, but that uh, in, in the midst of all that, which I love all that, uh, that, that we would, that those questions would really cut through. And again, that we would be able to respond, what do we do? What should we do? What needs to change in me? So would you raise your hands just to the Lord? Get them up. Lord, I bless your people. I bless your people to take your word and put it into action. I bless your people to, for relational prosperity. Jesus, you came for relationship, not just for function. And we're so grateful for that. I, and I, I just bless everyone here with the indwelling life of Jesus. Like, like this woman, Anna, who she, she saw Jesus and based upon what she saw, she couldn't help but give that gift of what she saw away to other people that desperately were expecting and looking for the Messiah. Lord, I bless everyone here for an increase in, in relational prosperity. And as well for financial prosperity, Lord, you, you see needs that 
are maybe are represented in these hands of, in terms of provision. Lord, and we, I just bless them for that. And that everything has to do with the indwelling life of Jesus, that there would be an increase and a greater capacity for the God of the universe to have His way in our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, we love you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. Family and and all that. Be uh, an amazing blessing to them. Go Hawks. One o'clock.